Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us uh, with this uh, latest edition. Very big show today. Joan Gary uh, will be my page two expert. You know her as the Dear Abby of nonprofits, and she's going to be helping your organization succeed. And uh, uh, her new book, which I'm, uh, we're over on Facebook, also at facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart, you can see uh, uh, her uh, terrific uh, new book, Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. We're going to be talking about that today, uh, and Joan is going to uh, help you with, uh, with your, the success of your uh, organization. Uh, as always, and as the announcer mentioned, uh, you can call in uh, during the uh, page two uh, segment at 347-324-3080. Uh, you can also ask questions over on Facebook, and that's facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart, or if you're super shy, Feel free to email us today at tedhart at tedhart.com. Uh, as always, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Eva Aldrich is here with us. She is the president and CEO of CFRE. Uh, just to remind all of our listeners, uh, the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show is hugely supportive of CFRE and believes that all nonprofit executives uh, should, and fundraising professionals, should stand for examination and should seek the CFRE designation. Uh, Eva, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. Bring us up to date on what's going on uh, over at CFRE here on the CFRE Minute. Thanks, Ted. It's good to be back. Uh, 
I think some of the things that would be good for people to know is that if they want to be a CFRE before the end of the second quarter of this year, uh, they have an opportunity to get their application in by April 15th, and that will get them qualified then for the second testing window. Um, it's always nice to be able to get that taken care of, and I know probably a lot of people will be going to the AFP conference in New Orleans, and we'll get jazzed up there. So we're looking forward to seeing a, a lot of interest and applications coming from that. Um, well, I know you folks are too. at a lot of conferences, and that's an opportunity for people to be able to uh, chat with you uh, specifically about advancing uh, their career. How do the numbers look um, for CFRE? I know you keep growing. Absolutely. We are at around 6,200 CFREs. Uh, we continue to have strong growth, both in the number of applicants and also in our recertific recertificant pool. Um, again, people are really behind CFRE. And I think when you take a look um, at our numbers, we've got CFREs in 23 countries around the world. We've got over, uh, we've got 25 partner organizations who support CFRE. And really, I think one of the things I find just personally most rewarding about CFRE is just the way in which I see fundraisers around the world coming together, standing up for ethical fundraising, for the professionalism of fundraising, and uh, to see such support for CFRE and for that is just always a wonderful thing. And I think it's a, it's a terrific designation that gives a signal uh, to board members and to administrators who may find fundraising to be a mystery, may find it to be very difficult, know that they need to be successful in that area but don't really have a clue how to do that, that there are standards of professional practice and having someone on your team with a CFRE designation um, is a feather in the cap for your organization but also an indication that you're taking fundraising and professional fundraising seriously. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that donors and the public want and require more and more. They want to know that fundraising is done professionally, that it's done ethically, that they can trust the organizations to which they give. And you know, having CFREs on staff is an indicator, as you said, that fundraising is taken seriously, uh, that you know, it's about more than just getting the dollars, although, of course, raising funds is important, but it's also doing it in the right way and doing it in a way that honors the organization's mission, that honors the donor's vision, and that brings them together. That's right. That's right. Um, so you folks will be at the AFP conference. You'll have a booth there so people can come uh, and see you. Uh, folks should go to CFRE.org uh, today to learn more about the certification, but also to make sure that uh, they um, are signing up if they're ready to sit for exam. Uh, now is the time to do that. So we are uh, posting CFRE.org over at Facebook so that you have that uh, link for all of our, our listeners. Any other uh, updates uh, for today's CFRE Minute? I think that's the gist of it, Ted. Uh, just take a look for us to be continuing to grow the CFRE credential in ways that serve the profession and serve our certificates, because that's why we're here. That's terrific, and uh, we always look forward to having you here on the show to bring us up to date on important deadlines and also to let our listeners know uh, where they can find you personally so they can connect and learn how they can advance their own professional career. That's uh, Eva Aldrich, President and CEO of CFRE. Thank you so much uh, for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach, and it's now time for Page Two.
Joan Gary is a luminary in the nonprofit sector, and I'm so proud that she is my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. She's a principal of Joan Gary Consulting, a boutique nonprofit consulting firm that helps nonprofits across the world uh, in a variety of different sectors to untangle strategic knots, enabling them to have a clearer path in pursuit of their missions. Uh, central to her work is change management. Uh, as, as the old saying uh, goes, there's nothing more constant than change. Certainly in the nonprofit sector, that is the case. Uh, and Joan Gary is here with us today. Uh, and Joan, um, before uh, we, uh, you, you joined us here, uh, I want to, uh, I did share with our listeners that you have this terrific book, uh, Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. Um, and it, I want to start off, if you don't mind, with the subtitle here uh, of this book. And I'm, I'm holding it up over here on, on, uh, on Facebook uh, because, of course, you know, we all feel that there are so many different interpretations of because nonprofits are messy. So welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Joan Gary, and why are nonprofits messy? <laughs> well, um, so it is a um, philosophy that I have, and it's one that I, frankly, kind of developed having moved from the for-profit sector to the not-for-profit sector. So I spent about 14 years in the entertainment business, first at MTV and then at Showtime, and then I left over to run a nonprofit organization called GLAD, a large gay rights organization. And pretty soon after I arrived, I sort of realized that there was a whole different DNA to nonprofits. Um, and um, I thought maybe I was going to be bringing some of my business acumen, which indeed I did, but I also mm-hmm. realized that it's a bit of a different beast. And, and I, I mean messy not necessarily in a pejorative way. So here's what I mean, is that if you take um, uh, <laughs> people who are highly overworked, often underpaid, you um, have them supervised by a group of board members who are also volunteers and also have day jobs, and they are um, constantly fighting for additional resources. And you add to that this big fat dose of passion. You end up with a fairly messy formula that has to be managed and curated with just the right finesse in order to maximize it. And, um, and that was one of the lessons that I learned moving from for-profit to not-for-profit. And it's one of the ones that I really like sharing with people because I think they need to just own the messiness of the nonprofit and really try to maximize all of the things that are wonderful about it without getting too caught up in the messiness of it. Exactly. I I just want to share this. uh, uh, You actually have an equation, uh, A plus B (laughs) plus C plus a big dose of intense passion equals messy, and you define A as a poorly paid and overworked staff, B, that relies on the efforts of people who get paid nothing, volunteers, and are overseen by another group of volunteers who get paid nothing and are supposed <laughs> to give and get lots of money. And then you add to that all everyone's passion, and, and this is what the, the, uh, the messy equation is. And, and I get that. I really understand that because – um, it's just a lot of work, and, and, and you, you have in your, uh, in your book, in the introduction, and I, and I, I love it, uh, it's, you know, it's sort of very 80s, right, uh, to always uh, open a presentation with, uh, with a cartoon, um, but I love that you brought that back, and I'm just going to hold that up for those who are over on, uh, 
on Facebook so that they can uh, see this cartoon. And it's uh, an analyst who uh, clearly has uh, a, uh, a fundraiser on her couch uh, who is maybe on those five minutes of vacation that they're allowed each year um, uh, because he's got shorts on, so I'm just imagining that he's on vacation. Uh, and she says, of course you're tired. Changing the world is an exhausting business. So we've just painted a picture of this is hard stuff. But isn't nonprofit supposed to be the easy sort of squishy side of the economy, sort of uh, not hard to do? I once had an executive director told me, oh, I can do fundraising. You take people to lunch. So I so think there's nothing isn't easy. Isn't that easy? I, I, it's just, no, you just I go have lunch. Not, yeah, I think there's nothing easy about nonprofit work. And, in fact, you know, it's sort of like the hardest work is often the most gratifying, Right. And that's right. Um, why should it be? You know, if you're in if you're in the business of changing the world, why should that be easy? You think that you think that's going to be easy? And, that's right. Um, you know, for me, I never worked harder in my life than when I moved over from the for-profit sector to the not-for-profit sector, and I never found more of a sense of reward and gratification. I never felt so personally and professionally transformed, and it just felt like a complete and utter joy and privilege. And um, mm-hmm. and I think the other thing, um, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book, Ted, was because I didn't think there was another book out there like that. I mean, I don't need to write another book just well, for the sake of writing yeah. the book. And, um, uh, you know, and I did a lot of due diligence about what was out there, and I generally found that, that, that people were rather instructive, people were rather clinical, um, and I wanted to add some authenticity and some accessibility to what I wrote. I also knew that in addition to moving over from the for-profit sector to the not-for-profit sector, that I'd also played every position on the nonprofit field. I was a donor, a corporate sponsor, an executive director, a board member, a volunteer. And so I could kind of put my shoes in, myself in everybody's shoes. So mm-hmm. there's authenticity. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of humor about, you know, funny stories or mistakes that I made that were, you know, that that were kind of not funny at the time, but were funny in hindsight. And then the last thing is, I firmly believe that there are books for executive directors, there are books for board chairs, um, but that I don't see them as separate entities. I actually see board chairs and executive directors as co-pilots in a twin-engine jet, that they're leading mm-hmm. the organization together, that each engine has to be really high-functioning and they have to be in sync with one another. And so mm-hmm. this is about the only book that you'll find out there that a board chair and an executive director could and should read together and talk about their roles in co-leading the organization. So that's actually probably the thing that, you know, Anybody who writes a book has an aspiration. I think my aspiration is that it becomes like the go-to for a new ED, and it becomes a go-to in an orientation in an orientation program for every new board member. Well, I, th- I think you're right in in that you created something uh, perhaps unique. I mean, I think there there are a number of books that try to do this. I think you've just done it in a very unique way in that I think you make it more accessible than most authors have, because I think most authors have approached these issues as sort of a cookbook. Like you do this, and then you do this, and you add a little bit of that, and then you're going to be successful. But I don't think you've done that. I think you've, you've looked at it perhaps on more of a human scale, and I'm wondering where that comes from. Is that because 
as you said, you've served in each of those roles, so you're not coming at it as sort of, this is what a board member needs to know about an ED because I'm an ED uh, or, or CEO or whatever, uh, or I'm, I'm a board member, so this is what I expect from staff. But you, you sort of bring all of those disciplines together in helping understand what do you have and where you need to go. Is that, is that sort of what you're doing here? Because that's what it feels like. Yeah, I would say that um, that the core element of the book is storytelling. And I do that with great intention, A, because I'm Irish and storytelling is part of my genes. Okay, um, great. And also because the best leaders are fantastic storytellers, and I thought that I should try to model that. And right. um, the second thing is I selected chapters that, yes, I think that I do recognize, having been a board member and an executive director, that the you make beautiful music when you both recognize that it's a partnership. And far too often, I mean, I became a certified mediator because I was far too often with my clients helping to negotiate conflicts between the board chair and the CEO, which I consider to be actually a complete waste of energy. And um, I wanted to try to bring those cohorts together. And the last thing I would say is that I went out and I looked I looked, at chat, I looked at other books and chapters that I felt were missing. So I think I, I, there's a chapter in my book called You've Got to Get Me at Hello, which is all about the power of storytelling and how to make sure you do that well because most nonprofit executive directors don't do it well. Most board members don't feel like they have the goods to tell good stories. Board uh, direct, development directors find that endlessly frustrating. Um, and so I found I, I identified chapters that I felt we're missing in other books that I felt were sort of kind of foundational to being uh, to being a good to being a good leader. And yes, having an accessible book, I made it. Someone said to me that I never thought I would curl, feel like I curled up with a good business book, but that's what it felt like. And I also wrote it, yeah. thinking that somebody could yeah, write, think- read it between LaGuardia Airport and maybe Houston. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I think this is a little bit more sort of a, a, a personal tale. It, it, it does uh, feel that you can find yourself in this book as opposed to reading about uh, someone else. So I, I feel like uh, that, that each of us are part of this book. So I want to go back and I want to I ask you to help our listeners. Uh, you mentioned these co-pilots. Uh, they're in the twin engine plane together. They need to be <laughs> active. But, but a lot of our listeners right now, their eyes are rolling, and they're saying, yeah, yeah, I get that. Wish I had that. But I inherited a board uh, that, that's very dysfunctional. They're distrusting of the staff. Uh, I got hired, but they're already distrustful of me. Uh, or they're micromanaging. So I don't have a co-partner here. I have someone who just wants to be my boss or just wants to show up to board meetings and knows nothing about us. Or So, it, 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 you know, looking at it from the, the staff perspective, it's like I don't have that, that, co, uh, that, that co-pilot. But then, you know, put yourself in, in the other seat, and you've got the board chair who's saying, you know, there's not enough transparency. I don't feel the organization is run professionally. I have concerns. And so there's some distrust there as well. So, so how, do, how does your reader, which we're assuming is, uh, is a chief executive 
uh, and or a, a board chair or in the leadership position, how do they go from that I'm not a co-pilot to becoming a co-pilot? So there's a couple of suggestions um, that I think are useful. The first thing is that everybody needs to know that a road runs both ways. So people, you know, if I work with clients and an executive director says I have a do-nothing board, like somehow or another that that executive director has no responsibility for that. So where was that executive director in uh, in the nominating and recruitment efforts? Was that person putting prospects into the hopper that would change the nature of that board? Where was the executive director in uh, discussions around who, whether or not the organization's board had a leadership pipeline? Um, and the third piece is what a, a board can, you can't just sit there and say, I just need that board to go and raise money for me and leave me alone. That's just not how it works, is that yeah. the road runs both ways. And um, I can't be an effective board member unless I, I have, this, I have another equation. I'm not a big math person, but I seem to like equations. So my equation here is that if you can enrich, engage, and inform your board members, so those three things, enrich plus engage plus inform equals ignite. And I'm a huge, huge proponent of focusing in on board meetings and those opportunities where board members get together. I think they are missed opportunities so often that, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that um, executive directors and staffs are not taking enough responsibility for building a solid board for recognizing the importance of a leadership pipeline doesn't mean they have final say, but they've got to have a voice. And that's right. Board so, meetings so I, have I, I, to be. They have board meetings absolutely have to be robust. They have to make me leave feeling ignited to wanting to invite people to know more and do more for the organization. And if you do not enrich me about the sector, if you do not inform me about key things coming down the pike. And if you do not ask my opinion, I'm not going to leave feeling like the best ambassador. Right. So what I'm hearing is uh, there's a lot of finger pointing. Uh, and so part of, part of the answer here is whichever position you have, look at yourself and determine are you creating an environment where your co-pilot, whoever that is, so the, your counterpart, is an active participant in the work that you're engaged in. So the fault could be with both. The fault could certainly be the executive director finding fault uh, in the board chair or the board uh, leadership, but not seeing their role in helping those, those folks be successful, feel successful, and be engaged. Um, but the same goes for the board leadership uh, who might be pointing fingers at the executive director not feeling like they're supported. Are you creating a, a supportive environment where partnerships can blossom? Pointing fingers, Ted, a, a, a very good metaphor, and the thing that probably irritates me the most about the nonprofit sector is here are these organizations. They have the most remarkable missions and the most remarkable people who've raised their hands to be of service, and they spend way too much time in my book pointing fingers at each other, which is a waste of energy when I would much rather have that energy focused on how to grow my programs, how to grow my resources, how to, how to think about 
the impact my programs are having so I can drive additional resources. The, the conflict that happens between board and staff, to me, almost borders on irresponsible. So there's two things I would say. One is sit down with your board and say, what is it you need from me, the executive director, to be successful? And then I say to you, here's what I need from you to be successful. And you put those things on flip charts and you try to make heads or tails of them in a way that feels really valuable to each party. The second thing I highly recommend when either the CEO is new or the board chair is new, for those two people, and I, and I do a lot of this kind of work, to sit down for two hours and look at, and I have some really good resources on my blog at joangary.com, so two R's, uh, about how to think about this relationship. And to sit down for a couple of hours and say, okay, what's in your lane? What's in my lane? And where is it really we're in the cockpit together and there's a lot of overlap and gray? And how are we going to manage that? And then at the end, to say, okay, if we're these co-pilots, why don't we answer this question? A year from now, as a result of our shared leadership, what will success look like? Like, Uh you've got to be intentional about thinking these things through. Otherwise, the relationship becomes simply transactional. And your clients or the community you serve or the one you advocate for deserve a whole lot more than that. That's right. And, and I think a truism to, to share uh, is uh, your good board members will leave first uh, if it is, becomes a dysfunctional uh, situation. They're not going to stick around. Uh, Joan, we have uh, posted over at Facebook uh, the link to uh, your blog so folks can uh, find that there. We've also uh, provided a link to Amazon where they can uh, purchase this terrific book. So, Joan, we're going to take a very uh, quick uh, break here. Uh, when we come back, I want to ask you uh, to help my audience understand why Gumby and Kermit the Frog could be good board members for you and could, in fact, become five-star nonprofit leaders. I am fascinated by this concept, and I look forward to hearing more about that. We will be back after this break. When you have a great idea, and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places, with different schedules, using different devices. Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you. With Google Docs, there's only one version for everyone to work on. Share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles. And work together on the same docs at the same time in a way that simply makes sense. Edit and interact easily with integrated social commenting.
Google Calendar makes it easy to share schedules and find times to meet, and schedule or update meetings with a few clicks. Everyone can't be in the same place at the same time, but Google Apps lets you work together from any place. With multi-way video chat, you'll feel like you're all in the same room. While screen sharing and integration with Google Docs lets you work with more people from anywhere, on any device, even on your mobile phone or tablet. Work with any team at any time, from any place, on any device. Google Apps. Work in the future, today. Don't uh, forget, next week here on The Nonprofit Coach, uh, we will have Eric Rarden here with us. Uh, he is, advises nonprofit organizations on donor lead acquisition and multi-channel conversation strategies. Um, he has worked with donors in over 100 countries and has worked on hundreds of campaigns uh, for nonprofit organizations, bringing donors and supporters together uh, for big and great causes. So don't miss uh, Eric here as our guest on next week's Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Joan Gary, the dear Abby of Nonprofits. Uh, more importantly, uh, her uh, new terrific book, the Guide to Nonprofit Leadership because Nonprofits are Messy. And if you buy this book, you are going to learn all about why Gumby and Kermit the Frog could be good board members. I'm fascinated. Joan, tell me how. <laughs> so um, so in my, um, in my effort to try to kind of think about what are the attributes primarily of a great nonprofit leader, whether that's an executive director of a board chair, I decided to sort of turn to the world of superheroes because I do actually think of all of your listeners who are in the nonprofit space, I kind of think of everybody as superheroes, right? You can do something else for a living where you're not changing the world, but you put your cape on every morning and sometimes it feels a little tattered or a little snug but you put it on and you get out there. And so kind of interested in thinking about what superheroes made the right kind of sense for leadership. And I, I looked at Superman and I looked at Spider-Man. I looked at Gumby. I looked at Katniss from the Hunger Games and I looked at Kermit. And each of them has a, um, you know, each of them has some very good qualities. I mean, Superman rides in and saves the day, but he's a lone wolf, right? Does it all on, on his own. Spider-Man, I like Spider-Man a lot. Um, he's a little insecure, actually. Then I looked at Katniss, and I thought she's a little aggressive. And I looked at Gumby, and I thought, you know what? Gumby is a pleaser. Gumby's going to say yes to a funder, even if the person should say no, even if Gumby should say no. Gumby might be hard to, might find it hard to fire somebody. And I ultimately landed on Kermit the Frog. And the reason I landed on Kermit the Frog is because I consider to him to be an inspiring champion and advocate for the Muppets. I believe that he always has a vision of what his show should look like. 
that he's very humble, but everyone looks to him for leadership, that he is, um, he really cares about the voices of the Muppets in terms of how to put that show on. And then I jokingly say he also knows how to deal with high maintenance people. And any of you who are development directors or executive directors know that you deal with high maintenance donors all the time. And clearly Miss Piggy falls into that category. And then, um, uh, <laughs> and, um, and lastly, um, take a look at it. I'll go ahead and Google a picture of the Muppets. And what do you see? Uh, clearly Kermit values diversity. So he's got blue people and he's got people with big noses. Uh, and so, you know, he's, he kind of, he's kind of the whole package. So that's why I kind of look at Kermit. And I think if you can find your inner Kermit and not everybody has all of it, right. I might be, so I sort of think of it like a horoscope, right. I might be rising Kermit. I might be Kermit with a rising Gumby because I'm a little bit of a pleaser or I might be a Kermit, but I have a rising Superman because I tend to want to just kind of do it myself. And it's a useful, it, albeit silly, but a useful way to, I always think if you could take the story out of the specific context and put it into another, it can be a whole lot more accessible and a really good way for you to think about your leadership attributes. And at the end of the day, Ted, that's what this chapter is about. It's not what skills do you need to be a great leader, but what attributes matter. Right. And you have five attributes that are important um, for, uh, for leaders. And, and I, I happen to agree with them, but I, I think it's an interesting combination because you could have chosen others. So uh, I'll just go through them. And then if you can, uh, a couple of them you've, you've already mentioned, but a couple of others I think really stand out as, as why are they on this list. So conviction, authenticity, tell a good story, be bold, and be joyful. Uh, yeah. Fascinating yeah. group. So why are those the attributes that you've chosen that are going to, I suppose, from the title of your book, uh, is going to uh, create a not-so-messy nonprofit? So uh, let's take them one by one ever so quickly. So conviction is I have to be so, so determined that the mission of this organization means the world. And I've got to be ready to fight for it. I have to be completely, so authenticity and storytelling are both very important. Any book you read on leadership, regardless of sector. I'm a really big fan of a guy named Howard Gardner who's written a book called Leading Minds. And I pull a lot of stuff out of leadership books like that. And he talks a lot about the best leaders being the most authentic people um, that they embody. Sometimes they embody the narrative that are, they're trying to communicate. So, you know, they look at somebody like Margaret Thatcher in World War II and, you know, she grew up in humble means and was able to carry that story with her. Um, and so it was very authentic. Um, think about any great leader is a great storyteller and it is not a science. It is way more art. Uh, bold. Uh, I, I think a great leader is willing to sort of take a bit of a risk to step out, uh, is not afraid to fail, if, failing, if you're sort of failing forward. And the last piece to me, and this is what Kermit has over everybody, I think, and what I believe is the ultimate big deal that separates good leaders from great leaders, 
is they need to approach this work with joy. There are a lot of people who choose to become executive directors because they're angry about the world as it is, and they are fiercely determined to make something different, whether it's, you know, regardless of what the topic is. But if you come in angry with a chip on your shoulder about that issue, I don't believe you have the same kind of impact, whereas if you come with the joy of knowing that you have been given the opportunity, the privilege of being a vocal voice and an ambassador for a specific change you want to see in society that is going to be for the greater good, and you approach that with joy, you will have a much greater time engaging others to be board members, staff members, and certainly, certainly donors. Now, that isn't doesn't mean you don't talk about what's at stake, but you joyfully communicate that you can be a part of this village of people, this army of the engaged who are working to make this world better than we found it. Well, and I love this combination that, that you have here, but, but it does stand out to me that being bold and being joyful uh, are on there together because I'm not sure that um, I necessarily always see those things together. So, so I, I get the concept of being joyful. Do you feel that part of what's missing in nonprofit leadership is this notion of vision that might be seen as being bold, but also being willing to take a risk and being joyful about that prospect? Because I think some people find that very scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the risk-taking thing is a, is a really interesting topic, Ted, because um, uh, the cult, nonprofit culture can be risk-averse, which, of course, is um, which also another thing that sort of irks me about the sector because people don't want to be able to they don't want to try something new that might cost money that might not that might not work but my goodness you know that's what research and development is all about in the for profit sector you've got to try new things to see if you're serving your clients well and mm-hmm. um, I wish that more um, you know I wish more funders would fund gen op expense you know gen op so that people would have that pot of money to be able to be innovative and to be risk-taking. And taking risk is, is, you know, honestly, I don't see them as separate in any way, shape, or form. And, in fact, I think, you know, some of the joy I experienced as an executive director was trying something and having it work or or trying something and recognizing I had found the secret sauce in the the failure. Um, Uh And... um, and I think one of the reasons I have sense of humor in my book and in my blog, my podcast, all of the things that I do is because I want to remind people of the joy. I don't want them, um, you know, this notion that every single decision you make in a nonprofit carries so much weight because there's so much at stake. It can be, I mean, that is, to me, that is the fast track to burnout is that every decision matters so much. You've got to actually have these light moments where you say, okay, that didn't work out so well. I mean, I opened my book and my first line of my book is I nearly killed my development director and not because she was doing a bad job, but because I was so, I was so in um, the two of us were so type a about getting the job done 
that she showed up to a board meeting wearing a heart monitor. Um, she's, you know, healthy as an ox still to this very day, but I learned a very valuable lesson about modulating what matters and what doesn't and, um, and reminding, reminding myself that the work is a, is a joy, and that actually does take down the stress and the tension several notches. Well, and in, in, in your, your, your book, you, you mentioned that uh, people in your organization want to be treated fairly and with compassion. It's not a lot to ask. Well, if it's not a lot to ask, uh, why isn't everyone doing it? <laughs> uh, fairly and with compassion. So some of it is you just, you're uh, running like a chicken without, without a head, trying to get things done. And when you do that, you sort of forget to say thank you. You forget to say hey, did you have a rough, you look tired. Did you have a rough weekend? So this, the pace at which you move can actually, um, and there's lots of studies, some really amazing studies um, about, about just this very thing, is that when you are moving too quickly, you forget to be kind and compassionate, and which is really mm-hmm. ironic when we think about what kind of work we do. Um, and... Um, uh, and I think that well, I think there's also something going on, especially if you are an organization that is advocating for minorities uh, or those people who do not have a voice, and you are one of those people. So, you know, I worked in, I worked for the LGBT community for 10 years, and I saw a lot of evidence. You know, you'd get hate mail, or you'd go on TV, and you'd get, you know, and, and you'd get sort of attacked by some of the conservative news organizations, and regardless of your political ideology, that takes its toll. And you can't take your toll. I can't take it out on Bill O'Reilly. So do I go back to my office and take it out on my colleague? They call that lateral violence. And so we see a lot of that in these environments and we've got to be mindful of that. Well, what, uh, how do you manage that at times of crisis, Uh, financial crisis, uh, any sort of, disruption to the organization. You have this plan. Everything's running along smoothly. You actually uh, are among the lucky ones, and you do have a co-pilot with you, and then you hit a bump in the road. Um, How do you manage that without it becoming messy? Well, I, you know, this is another chapter that I put in my book, and I talk a lot about, I I just did a recent podcast. I have a podcast coming out next month with a woman who runs a, uh, an animal shelter in Chicago that had a crisis where a dog was stolen from her shelter, and it turns out that her, uh, and they, they put out an APB on the dog, and it turns out that one of her own staff members stole the dog. And how do you manage that in such a way that the reputation of the organization is not impacted? But I can tell you that I, when I first joined GLAAD in 1997, we literally had 18 staff members and $360 in the bank and, um, and a debt of about a quarter of a million dollars. And wow. the way that I approached it uh, was with intention. Uh, I, uh, and I spent a lot of time being really, really transparent with my staff um, and, and engaging them because they knew things were tough, but they didn't, if you don't tell people, they fill the gap. And so transparency, authenticity, making sure that you have a village of support outside your organization, that can make all the difference. Um, but financial, you know, financial crises happen to nonprofits far too often. 
and um, making sure that if you are not have if you do not have the appropriate degree of financial acumen that you surround yourself with a couple of people who do um, that you focus on what you're really really good at and you start selling that to drive resources to the organization so that you can build things back um, and that's what we did I mean within six months we had um, wiped away the debt we had we were we did not have to lay anybody off um, and we moved into the next year but we played to our strengths I had a vision for the organization and I was a new person and I sold it every chance I got and I would say I inherited an organization that <clears throat> you know is feeling a little bumpy and I I want to go here this is the vision I have for the organization this is my destination but I can't get from here to there without your support. And, um, and, that, and I think that it worked really well, and I think part of it worked about with some degree of authenticity. I wasn't going to say I didn't inherit a bit of a mess. And, um, and I was a good storyteller about why this work was meaningful. And, um, yeah. uh, and I didn't come across as desperate, or, or, or I did not come across as desperate in any way, shape, or form. But I think that in terms of any kind of nonprofit crisis, transparency, authenticity. Um, I mean, you, you see it. I mean, I mean, I, li- I lived through 9-11 in New York City, and, um, and Rudy Giuliani was out there talking about what was going on every single day. He did not let very much space happen while, in, in between his ability to tell people what was going on, even if there was nothing new to report. Right, and that and that that again is about authenticity. And, and of the attributes that you that you've outlined, I, I believe you have said that the most important is to be joyful. Yeah, that that is that um, is actually my belief. Yes. So why joyful? Why why not uh, uh, bold or conviction? I mean, can I get by with those? Uh, if I'm not I'm, joyful, I'm not really going to meet my the pinnacle of my success i'm not suggesting that people be joyful without being authentic right so if okay. times are tough it is hard to be joyful no question but i do believe and i you know you guys are the, the, the fundraising experts here too is that i when i sit down and i you know i get asked for money so i sit down with folks too and i want them i want them to just make me feel like they thought they won the lottery to have this job. I want to feel that being a part of that village is something really special with really bright people who are really dedicated and recognize what a privilege it is to be in a position to do this work. And um, there is no question a joy that comes with fighting the good fight. There is no question that there is a joy that comes with being paid to, in fact, make a difference. And I believe that when you exude that as an ambassador, whether you're a staff member, a board member, whether you're the office manager or the head of development, when you exude that in front of a group of volunteers, when you exude that in with what you write and what you share, that that's what brings more people to you. And I believe ultimately... Um, nonprofits really thrive when they build as big an army as they can of people who feel like they have a lot of skin in the game 
and are engaged and invested in the work. Well, and I think you're absolutely right because I'm approaching, that's why I wanted to have you sort of share that with our audience because uh, when things are not going great, which is going to be a point at which there's going to be things that are not going according to plan, there, you need to be the leader who can have that joyful vision. If you attract more people to you where you may not have the answer, the answer may come from that group. There may be others who come forward who are drawn to that, that vision. Uh, but if there's no joy in that, if there's no better state that you can envision or help them envision, why would they give their time to you? Why would they give their money uh, to you? Right. Because, you know, quite honestly, you know, very, while there's some examples, uh, although I, I always question uh, the the uh, the foresight of it, you know, crisis fundraising and the 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 roof is falling in kind of uh, fundraising has a very short uh, shelf life because if there is no future better state, I think donors then begin to question. Well, maybe uh, you should not be in business, or maybe you can't be in business, or maybe you can't be successful. So I, I'm absolutely with you on this notion of. Of joyful, not not joyful in sort of a, a, a cynical way or or in a way that's not authentic, as as you said, but someone has to put forward a vision of a better state that absolutely brings people right. What is the vision to, of right? So, absolutely. I mean, I have to have a, an inspirational vision. Is one where you know, imagine a world where fill in the blank, right? That's, right. There's That's a right. joy associated with the vision of almost every organization, and that has to be communicated by the lead ambassadors because I need to believe that when my twin-engine jet, you know, finally lands at its destination, like it's going to be a pretty damn swell place. And I want to say right. something else, exactly. too, if I may. Is I, so I started last year, I, I, I felt like there was this huge gap for leaders of board and staff leaders of small nonprofits who couldn't afford consultants or coaches. So I'm talking about maybe like sort of organizations of a million dollars or less, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little less. And so I started this thing called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, um, which you can learn about at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. And it is, it is a online content and community for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. And we have a you know, sort of a private um, a community where people can ask each other questions and we provide expert answers. But I have to tell you, it is one of the most inspiring places I spend every morning is, you know, meeting with, you know, being in that space. We have something called Wednesday Wins where we make sure that people are are focusing in on what's good that's happening as opposed to the donor who said no. And, um, and it's, it's quite a, um, and we, we have a good sense of humor there and, um, and I think it's, it, it makes a real difference for these leaders, not only to be in community with one another, but also for there to be this kind of tone and tenor of joy and reminding yourself about why you're in the work and listening and supporting each other's big victories. Um, that stuff is all part of this. Mm-hmm. And we've posted uh, the, uh, the link for the Nonprofit Leadership Lab uh, over uh, at uh, facebook.com forward slash uh, Ted Hart. Oh, um, in, the, in the roughly 10 minutes, nine minutes that we have left, I want to uh, ask you to focus on something that I think 
for all the things that we shared today, which has just been amazing, and the the the, the really fresh approach that you bring uh, to these topics is so appreciated. But but I sort of feel like going through this book that at the heart of all of this is a core understanding. And correct me if I'm wrong, a core understanding of power and authority, and yeah. the difference between those two. So can can you share with that sort of take us to uh, to the end here if uh, if you want in terms of the central nature of understanding power and authority. Are they the same thing? Um, are they the same thing on every day? What do we need to know about that if, in fact, we're going to take this Joan Gary book, A Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and make our, our nonprofit maybe a little bit less messy? So I, I believe what you're driving at, I think it is pretty central to the book, is you know, having come across the bridge from the for-profit sector, I had a boss. And I did not necessarily expect to win the day on a decision. I didn't always even, even I didn't always expect to have much of a voice. That how I was measured and how I was compensated was by, you know, a good salary and the potential of a year-end bonus. And I arrived to the nonprofit sector and I think to myself, okay, that's very interesting. So, um... And I started to think about the fact that if you think about hierarchy and the boss structure and the, the whole issue of authority, you really miss something very, very important in the nonprofit sector. And by the way, I believe that the for-profit sector has much to learn in this regard from the nonprofit sector, is that yeah. <clears throat> it's not authority that matters, that one of the things that I have came to understand is that power doesn't come to you by virtue of your title, that if you are an executive director, that it is a better thing to think about, to consider that the power comes from around you. That, um, that I, um, my team comes to this work because they care a lot, a lot, a lot. And what that means is that they come expecting to have a voice. That's a certain amount of power to have a voice that doesn't exist in the for-profit sector. So the stakeholders around you have power. Do they have authority? Not in the same kind of way. I think of it as voice versus vote. So if I'm going to have a new staff person come in and I'm going to have a number of staff people interview that person, you have to make it really clear. I would like you to have a voice in this. Tell me what you think. The authority rests with me, but your voice matters to me. This is stuff that doesn't typically happen in the for-profit sector. And um, I like to think about power being shared in the nonprofit space which is another piece of the messy puzzle that I think that mm-hmm. board chairs and executive directors share the leadership. Sometimes one person's in the foreground, sometimes the other is. But for a board chair to do that command and control, I am the boss of the executive director. Um, honestly, it, to me, it's a recipe for um, tension and it is, uh, it's just not how it should operate because each person brings something different to the table. Now, I'm not naive. I'm totally not naive. At the end of the day, the board is responsible for the evaluation, hiring, and firing of the executive director. 
and that's pure unadulterated fact in the gospel according to nonprofits. But if you if you if you execute that way on an everyday basis, you will not build that. You know, the probably I don't know much about the airline business, even though I talk about airline metaphors all the time. Um, but I'm pretty sure that the best people in that cockpit really share that leadership in a really big way. And that the, you know, the, the second person is not just the guy who makes sure that there's a, you know, the, 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 the heat is on in the cockpit. Like there's like real roles for everybody. So that's why I think about power and authority in a different way from the for-profit sector. And I think it's part of the tension that exists between boards and staff because board members come largely from those environments that are much more hierarchical and authoritarian. That's also why I highly, highly, highly recommend people with nonprofit experience to sit on boards so that they can be an additional voice to the executive director and the development director to be able to help everybody understand that it's a different, more interesting, slightly messier uh, kind of um, DNA in a nonprofit that harnessed properly can make really amazing things happen. There's a book, uh, and I can't remember it, uh, the author, Tim Harford, called Messy, The Power of Mess to Transform Lives. And it is, you know, it talks about jazz and art and all of those things that from the outside looking in seem a little messy, but they can be extraordinary. And I think that's, I guess that's um, the big takeaway for me is nonprofits are messy is not a pejorative. It is a description of a DNA that can make extraordinary things happen. Yeah, I, I don't think it, I didn't I didn't take your subtitle in a pejorative way at all. I, I thought it was uh, it was honest uh, in in saying that you know that it's okay for there to be a lot of things going on. Um, and, and as I've often said, you know, if nonprofit organizations were uh, meant to be non be for profits, they would be. Um, I mean, if, if, there, if there were a big profit incentive here uh, in all of these important causes, uh, then why not have them be a, a for-profit enterprise? They're not. They're for the community good. And whenever you're totally. talking about the human condition, uh, you're talking about a lot of different perspectives. You're talking about a lot of different styles. Um, you're talking about the difference between power and authority. Um, and all of these things play out in an organization that, as you said, then piles on an extra helping of passion. Um, yes. And that just yeah. makes it high energy, maybe, maybe seemingly to be chaotic energy, but in that great things happen. And, and that's what I really uh, love about this book. This is what I really uh, encourage people uh, to, uh, uh, to buy this uh, uh, book. And as you said, it's, it's written in a style that is not preachy, uh, which I really like. It doesn't say you're doing wrong and you someday could do better. Uh, what it's saying is there's a partnership and that all of the players in that partnership need to understand their individual roles and their collective roles and coming together, nonprofits can succeed. That this is, that, that's sort of the, the, the subtext here is that all is not lost. Uh, there, is a, there is a better day. Um, and so, Joe and Gary, thank you for being my guest here. This, this time has just flown by. We have about a minute left. Can you make sure that my uh, listeners know how to reach you? Yes, and I also, one minute left. Um, leading nonprofits is not easy. 
I feel like people like you and me, Ted, we are champions and advocates for nonprofit leaders. I'm running a free online video workshop starting April 7th. I would love for you to join. We had it. We made it available last year. Thousands of people signed up at Thriving Nonprofit, singular, thrivingnonprofit.org. Um, so please join us. The videos are available at your convenience over a 14-day period. People have found them remarkably helpful. And visit me, uh, subscribe to my blog at joangary.com. That's uh, G-A-R-R-Y. I, too, have a podcast, uh, which is also called Nonprofits Are Messy. And um, it's kind of a little bit of a mission of mine to try to do what I can to, um, to be a champion and advocate for nonprofit leaders on the board and the staff. Well, Joan Gary, you are doing a terrific job. Thank you for being my guest today. Uh, we'll post the thrivingnonprofit.org uh, along with all the other uh, links that you have mentioned uh, today over at Ted Hart, uh, facebook.com forward slash Ted Hart. Thank you for being my guest. That is our show for today. Thank you very You've much. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.